We have a Father's Day collaboration episode. So there's a few of us that have joined forces to bring you as much true crime and creepy goodness as you can possibly stand. Yay for you. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, creepy people. Hello. Hello. This is PW Haunts and Homicides. And the tough thing about this episode is that there are probably a few confused people listening. No, no one's confused. <laughs> I, I mean, if you didn't read the show notes, you are definitely confused because <laughs> you may be listening to us from another favorite podcast feed. And you're like, who the hell are these weirdos? Hello, we're your new creepy friends. Yeah, we're just taking over now. Panic sets in. Total takeover. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not a total takeover. Nope. We have a Father's Day collaboration episode. So there's a few of us that have joined forces to bring you as much true crime and creepy goodness as you can possibly stand. Yay for you. <laughs> in today's episode, in no particular order, we were literally just discussing this. There's not an order of importance or anyone that the group likes the best. They're just in there by random. We tried to play them all at once, all at the first spot, but it didn't quite work out. So. No, you couldn't understand a goddamn thing. <laughs> <laughs> so we have TSFU. And if you're unacquainted, that's so fucked up. They are first in the lineup. Next is Twisted and Uncorked. Our story is smack dab in the middle. Squeeze in Squeeze. the middle. In the fourth spot, we have Weird Distractions. Next up, we have Ye Old Crime. And last but not least, we have Sandman Stories. All right, let's get into our first fucked up story from Caitlin Said It. That's so fucked up. Woo! With hosts Ash and Allie. Roll tape. And I'm just going to be here singing along because they sent their theme song and we're not cutting it out because it's my favorite sing-along. It's great. <laughs> that is so fucked up. It's fucked up. So fucked up. It is just so damn fucked up. That's fucked up. Hey, everybody, and happy Father's Day. This is Ash and Allie from That's So Fucked Up, a podcast about cults, murder, and other generally fucked up stuff. We are super excited to be a part of this collaborative episode, and we know that we've got to keep it short and snappy. So we will just dive right into the story, and we thought that for Father's Day, an appropriate man to talk about would be what father of the year I'd have to say award-winning just a gem of a human who are we talking about today Allie today we are talking about father of the year John List 
if you are a true crime aficionado, I'm sure that name at least is ringing a bell in your head. And yes, he is the man who killed his entire family. We love a family annihilator. Yeah. And I think the end is my favorite part, which is so rarely the case. Usually it comes to the end and you're like, well, it got worse and worse and worse and ended on the biggest bummer ever. (laughs) But it took a little bit of a peak at the end. There was a little bit of a upward movement. Yeah, we're into it. So we're not going to talk too much about John List himself because who the fuck cares? Nice garbage. He's a piece of garbage. He was in the military. He married his wife, Helen, in 1951. She had at least one child from a previous marriage, a daughter. Brenda. Mm-hmm. We are going to call Brenda the lucky star of the story. I don't know. I'm just saying you're probably not getting out without some PTSD for sure. 100%. She was lucky to not be living in the house at the time of the crime in Rochester, New York. So John and Helen had three more children. And Helen, unfortunately, was suffering from alcoholism and becoming increasingly sort of mentally unstable. And in 1960, her daughter, Brenda, married and left the household. List and the rest of the family moved to Rochester, New York. And (laughs) the Fucking, what, five of them plus his mom moved into a 19-room Victorian mansion. Who needs that many rooms, Allie? That is a little excessive. They each need two and a half rooms, I guess. It's fucking ridiculous. Two rooms each. You know when a house has its own name, it's fucking fancy. Yeah, and what was the name? Breeze Knoll. Oh. Sounds peaceful. It does. Yeah, it was in Westfield, New Jersey. On November 9th, 1971, well, we'll just come out and say it. John List killed his entire family with a semi-automatic handgun and a Colt 22 revolver. And Allie, I feel like I've been chatting a lot. You want to take it away from here? (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) I'm going to talk a little bit about why he decided to murder his whole fucking family. And it's super good reasoning. In my mind, solid. Such good reasoning. So in 1971, he was laid off at the bank he worked at in New Jersey City. Ouch. Pride. The thing is, he was so prideful, he did not want to share this humiliating development with his family. So he just continued to pretend to go to work. He would like get up, get dressed. And he gets up in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And he just spent the day either reading newspapers or trying to go for interviews or just hanging out at the train station. He was trying to make it look like he still had a job. How much ego do you have that you can't even tell your fucking family? Yeah. Hey. Hey guys, heads up. Maybe we don't need a 19 room house. Yeah, maybe we should downsize because, you know, shit's going down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he started diverting money from his mom's bank account to default on his mortgage. So as the year progressed, his finances became more and more strained. The mom was living at the house with mm-hmm. them, just like skimming a little off the top. He's like, yeah. she won't notice. <laughs> and then at that point, he decided to encourage his children to work part time to teach them maturity and responsibility. But actually, it was to help keep the finances in check because he didn't have a fucking job because he was hanging out at the train station reading newspapers. And basically having his children and mom finance the family. Yeah, exactly. His 19 room mansion. Okay. His estate. Yeah, that's 
sensible. So he was also dealing with his wife's alcoholism and untreated syphilis she contracted by her first husband and concealed for 18 years. Am I right that syphilis can make you go a little kooky in the brain? I was going to say that. So I think since we both thought that, that it must be true. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll say, yeah, I think it does. So her health kind of continued to deteriorate and... Oh, real quick. Mm -hmm. Syphilis can cause psychiatric disorders, including depression, mania, psychosis, personality changes, delirium, and dementia. So untreated syphilis is no good. No bueno. Mm -mm. Bad times. So her health kind of deteriorated along with her alcohol consumption. According to testimony, quote, transformed her from an attractive young woman to an unkempt paranoid recluse. (gasps) Ew. Yeah. And she... (laughs) She would often publicly humiliate him, make fun of his manhood, compare him to her ex-husband. Ooh, that's mean. Liz suffered from OCD. He saw only two solutions to this financial hardship. Either he could, well, I don't know. I think there was three. Get a fucking job, dude. But his two options that he saw- But he didn't see that. (laughs) No, that wasn't on the table. It was accept welfare or kill his family and send their souls to heaven. Welfare was not even on the table because he would have been humiliated by that because he was taught to care for and protect his family members. So he decided the better course of action would be to murder them because then they'd be safe in heaven. Yeah. Well, Helen had started to, you know, turn her back from the church. And he was afraid that if the children went through the humiliation of becoming poor, that they too would turn their back from the church and not get into heaven. Right. He's doing them a favor. (laughs) I honestly can't say if that was his actual thoughts. But that is what he claims, that he was doing them a solid. He's like, look, this way, you're not going to get embarrassed. You're definitely going to go to heaven. I wouldn't pick that choice. I'd rather have options and then not go with that one. I think the third option is definitely, I don't know, getting a job or selling your 19 room mansion. Nobody needs that. Maybe just downsizing a little. So while his kids were at school, he shot Helen in the back of the head. Then he shot his mother above her left eye. When Patricia, 16, and his younger son, Frederick, 13, got home from school, he shot each of them execution style in the back of the head. Then this fuck made himself a nice little sandwich. That guy's got to eat. Went and watched his oldest son's soccer game. Oh, right. Had a sandwich, went and watched 15-year-old John play soccer. Then on the drive home, John Jr. was like, I'm getting fucking weird vibes. Mm -hmm. So an altercation takes place and evidence shows that John did try to defend himself and he was shot repeatedly. So his death was certainly not as quick as the rest of the others, which is really sad. So he takes Helen and the kids, puts them all on sleeping bags in the mansion's ballroom, because again, that's something we all need, right? His mom was too heavy, so he left her in her apartment attic by herself like a fucking dick, wrote a five-page letter to his pastor saying that there was too much evil in the world and that he killed his family to save their souls. Rightly so. He also cut himself out of all of the pictures in the house like a fucking weirdo, but apparently this was to make sure that it would be really hard for them to find images of him to create a sketch or to put pictures of him on the news. He also turned on a religious radio station 
pumped up the volume, turned on all the lights in the house so that there was sound and noise. So people thought they were there. And then this motherfucker dipped on out. He bounced. Back to you, Allie. (laughs) The thing is, like the bodies weren't found until December 7th, which was almost a month later because the wife wasn't really getting out much. Neither was the grandma. And he'd written notes to the kids' school and their jobs saying they would be visiting their other grandma in North Carolina for a few weeks. So he stopped all the milk delivery, the mail deliveries. He took care of all the loose ends. Or so he thought. Yeah, so no one even bothered coming by. I'm wondering if he had syphilis too. And that made him go a little cray. Probably. Oh my God. That is such a good point. Probably. It's a STD, sexually transmitted disease. Hers was uncured. He didn't know about it for almost two decades. Also, maybe he was kind of mad about that. Like, hey, we've been married for 18 years and you never told me that you have syphilis and you're losing your mind. Cool, 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 cool. So one of the things the neighbors noticed was that the lights were on all the time, but they never saw anyone coming or going. And then the light bulbs began burning out. So they noticed the lights were always on in the house and they were like, well, that's a little weird. And then they started burning out and that's when they called the police. The police came and they entered through an unlocked window and that's where they found the bodies. And obviously that was a pretty intense smell to walk into. So in 1972, the house was actually destroyed by fire. It burnt down. A year after the murders. Mm -hmm. Some of the things destroyed were the ballroom stained glass skylight that was Tiffany's and worth $100,000. Could he not have like sold that shit and paid off a bunch of debt? I think he just wanted to kill the family. That's what it comes down to. It's thought that he might have come back to burn the house down and take that shit so that he would have money to survive on. Which, yeah, like, why didn't he take it to begin with then? I don't know. Do over. Yeah. Again, I think he just wanted to kill the family because there's like so many solutions here. Sell the fucking chandeliers. Seriously. Mm -hmm. What is happening? So this fuck drops his car off at JFK, but they don't actually think that he got on a plane. A manhunt ensues all across the nation, but John List is not seen for the next 18 years. But in May 1989, during its first year on air, Way to Go America's Most Wanted. Iconic. They had like a clay bust of him and it actually did look pretty much like List. And some of his acquaintances called and were like, "Mm, yeah, we like totally know this dude. That's my neighbor. And yeah, this motherfucker, after 18 years of being on the lam and living his own little life, I mean, he like remarried, dude. (laughs) Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Being married to that guy and finding out, A, you have syphilis, and B, he killed his whole family. <laughs> you totally have syphilis, which is the biggest ouch here. <laughs> he uh, cruised around the country for 18 years under the name Robert Peter Clark, who was one of his um, former college colleagues. <laughs> classmates. <laughs> and he actually was in Denver a while. Shout out Colorado. <laughs> and he did remarry. Like I said, what a fucking mind fuck to find out that your husband was a different person completely who had murdered his entire family. Whoa, lots of therapy there. But yeah, he got arrested. And in 1990, he was convicted on five counts of first degree murder and spent the rest of his days behind bars. Go fuck yourself, John 
list. You are pathetic. And we have one more fun fact before we sign off. Oh, he was also possibly a suspect in the D.B. Cooper air piracy case. (laughs) He matched multiple descriptions to the hijacker. And he was questioned by the FBI after his capture about this, but he denied involvement. Oh, my God. But they questioned him as Robert Peter Clark because they didn't know that he was the missing John List. No, he was questioned after his capture. So he was captured as John List. And they were like, wait a second. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they're like, and you're a sketch ball. So, mm-hmm. well, you guys, we tried to keep it short and snappy. Hope you enjoyed it. Have a great Father's Day. If you don't celebrate Father's Day and you hate your dad, cool, fuck him. If you uh, have a good dad or a good dad figure. Give him some love. Yeah, give him some love today. Give him a snuggle. Give yourself some love. Be your own loving parent if you need to. You guys, that too. We love you. To all the new listeners who are not current listeners of the podcast, great to meet you. Hope you enjoyed it. Follow That's So Fucked Up anywhere you listen to podcasts and find us everywhere at TSFU, the podcast. Bye. Bye. That's fucked up. So fucked up. Can't you see? It's just really fucked. That's fucked up. Whoa, Caitlin, that story was so fucked up. It was the most fucked up. Ugh. Who do we have next? We have Twisted and Uncorked. Um, in this situation, and I believe Alicia is going to explain, we do have a little bit of a guesting fill-in type situation. Oh, who filled in? You may recognize the voice. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Twisted and Uncorked is hosted by Alicia and Sierra. Sierra had something else in her schedule that conflicted with recording, so I did step in. Caitlin's trying to infiltrate everyone else's <laughs> podcasts. She's everywhere. <laughs> this bitch. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I'm excited to hear it because I was not there. Let's uncork this next twisted tale. Full warning, this story is super sad, so I just want to preface by saying that not all of the stories we cover at Twisted and Uncarked. No, that's not how you say the name of my show. Twisted. And where did that accent come from? I had a spirit take over my body. But Twisted and Uncorked are this dark. We cover all twisted topics, paranormal, true crime, cults and curses. We've got you covered. I would also like to say that I am solo representing our show today. My bestie and co-host Sierra is dealing with a family emergency at the moment, but we had already agreed to do this wonderful collaboration and the research was done. So I have my super cool buddy, Caitlin from Pacific Northwest Haunts and Homicides here with me. Represent. (laughs) (laughs) She's my buddy, so it'll be good too. But I just want to give all of these prefaces out front. So that said, come and check out both shows and uh, buckle up for this nightmare. So today I am telling you about the Saeed family and the tragic murders of Amina and Sarah. It's often known as the media as the honor killings. Oh, no. And it's, it's, it's pretty rough. So these girls died at the hands of their own father. And that makes sense because it's a Father's Day episode. All because of culture clash and a need for control. 
father, Yasser Saeed, believed in old world arranged marriages and was raised in Egypt. And basically women were auctioned off for marriage with the girl going to the highest bidder. So so that's fun. Great. Just uh, like livestock. Yeah, right? <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, it's good times. So Yasser wasn't in Egypt, though. He was in Bedford, Texas with his Texas wife, Patricia, of whom he married when she was 15 and he was 29. Not great either. Nope. And uh, don't like that. Patricia recalled later that she felt like she used the marriage to get out of a poor family situation. And it wasn't so much for love. He had promised her a better life. And things were okay in the beginning. As all good true crime marriages start. (laughs) And she thought that maybe it could work out, that they could be really happy together. But he started to abuse her. And so it begins. Patricia's family was obviously not too keen on the marriage, not even knowing about the abuse. And nothing seemed to change for her. She worked constantly to pay the bills while Yasser worked as a part-time cab driver. And they had three kids to support, a son, Islam, and two daughters, Amina and Sarah. Yasser started needing more and more control in his family's life, and he felt like they were changing for the worst. He began to resent Patricia, even saying that he hated everything American and that it was a mistake that he married an American woman. Oh, boy. He would, That's a lot. Yeah, right? As an American woman yourself, you're like, mm, we're not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we all have our days. <laughs> but not to say the blanket hate statement. And he would create messes just to have her clean them up. He cheated on her with at least six different women. And Yasser would cut at Patricia's legs with a knife when she refused to have sex with him. Oh, okay. So he's great. Yeah, man. I mean, such a nice guy. I can't imagine why she's not more interested and available. Right? No kidding. Yikes. He had her take inappropriate photos as well. And she was just becoming more and more miserable. But she didn't want to leave her kids. And the way that Yasser treated his son and daughters were completely different. In addition to his relentless control over Sarah and Amina, it also became apparent that he was abusing his daughters physically and sexually as well. No. Yeah, I know. I just, I just, hold it. Like, we're just going to go all the way down. Like, it keeps going. Fair warning. Hold on to your butt. No. He was obsessed with them and would film them constantly, almost keeping surveillance on them. And as they grew into their teens, as teenage girls do, they pulled away more and more. But he would just bug their computers and phones and just surveil them. And Sarah and Amina admitted to their grandmother that they were being abused. And that was when Patricia took all of the kids out of the house. But it was only a matter of time before he dragged them back home. And the sexual abuse against the daughters was reported to the police. In a formal interview, the girl said that their dad had raped them. And then suddenly they recanted their story as if nothing had happened. Amina would later say that her parents, a.k.a. Yasser, 
told them that they needed to recant their statements or that he would go to jail where he belonged. Right. I was just going to say, that's kind of probably where he should be. Yeah, but he bullied them out of it. And Patricia has no control in this situation. In addition to their admission to their grandmother, the home videos that were released after the murders are very uncomfortable and to me indicate that he was abusing them and that they were also quite icked by their own dad. For example, he would zoom in on their bodies and go, ooh, nice, or why are you sleeping with pants on? And they would be like, ew, stop, and just kind of make jokes and say things like, oh, dad, that's illegal. Like, But they're clearly very uncomfortable, but also very afraid, which is just unbearable okay. to think about. Well, I have to go. I'm <laughs> going to be catching a shuttle off of this planet and um, goodbye forever. So it just breaks my heart in addition to everything that these girls would endure at the hands of their father that they would also be living like this and so afraid of him. So let me tell you more about Amina and Sarah Saeed. They were incredibly close and just typical teenage girls. Amina was a social butterfly and a little more chic. Sarah was more of a tomboy, but they did everything together. They were very active. They liked going for walks and playing sports together. They were very well-mannered. They were smart, and they were beautiful inside and out. Okay. The older that they got, the more they pulled away from their family, like I said, as typical teenage girls do. And because of their father's abusive nature, they learned to start keeping everything from him, especially when it came to boys. Oh, of course. Amina was the older of the two girls and the first to start dating. She met and fell in love with Joseph Marina, and they met at a martial arts class, and it was love at first sight. They dated for four years. Wow. And Joseph's mom loved Amina and very much approved of her. But she did have concerns over how serious she would get when it came to her father and the possible danger that he could pose on them. Oh, boy. Joseph and Amina traded notes on their way to class every day, which is like the cutest goddamn thing I could think of. They would like pass each other love notes in the hallway. They were, And they weren't only crazy about each other, but they were best friends. Their romance had to be kept a secret, though. Amina was terrified of her father and didn't want him to hurt Joseph. They made their own language even when it came to text messages. And he saved, or sorry, and she saved him in her phone under a different name. She even had a second phone that her dad didn't know about. And Amina and Joseph were planning on eloping in Vegas, but their plans would be cut short. So men couldn't even look at Yasser's daughters without his permission. All the while he was flying them to Egypt. For example, when Amina was 16 in the summertime, he flew her there and tried to marry her to a 44-year-old man. But she flat out refused. Yeah. But he was still actively trying to marry them off two people back home in Egypt and the girls were horrified they wanted to marry for love not for who they were bidded off to for the highest price yeah that that feels right yeah and they also didn't get the same privileges that their brother did so things were miserable so when Sarah got a job 
Yasser would even spy on her there and freak out when she was smiling at customers calling her a whore. (gasps) In one video that was put out to the public, he and Amina were sitting in the car and she was like, Dad, it's part of her job that she smiles at customers trying to keep him calm and be the voice of reason. One day, Yasser found one of Amina's love notes and lost it. He beat her over and over again because she wouldn't tell him who she was dating or where he was. And the abuse was so bad that Amina would confide in her friends. She would send them emails detailing what he would do. Like, he kicks me in the stomach, kicks me in the face with his boots, and tells me to sit up, whore. Like, he's, oh this God. is his child. Like, oh. sir. He basically, is- like, yeah, it's unbelievable. So Yasser basically moved his family from Bedford, Texas to Louisville, Texas, 20 miles away overnight. Okay, well, I thought you were going to say Egypt. Oh, no, that would be insane. Whew. Moving okay. to Egypt overnight. No, just 20 yeah. miles. Okay, well, that's a relief, at least. And Joseph stopped hearing from Amina. She was too afraid to reach out to him for fear of putting him in danger, which is like real-life Romeo and Juliet situation. Just kind of like the saddest thing I've ever heard. So he was incredibly dangerous. We've already learned that. But to escalate the situation, in addition to all of the shitty things that he has already done to his family, he had a pistol that he would threaten his kids with in the middle of the night and said that they had to do what they what he said or he would shoot them. Oh great. I mean that's one way of coercing your kids. Yeah. That's great parenting. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Coercive control. Yeah. That's just fine. Weapons. All good stuff. So Amina had long believed that her dad would eventually kill her. She was so scared that she even oh. could considered completing suicide at one point with her dad's gun. It was hinted at in her diary entries that she felt this way, that it was only a matter of time. She just wanted to live whatever life that she could, and the love that she had for Joseph was what eventually would cause him to snap. Yasser would also learn that Sarah had a secret boyfriend. And knowing that it was not safe for these girls anymore, Sarah, Amina, and Patricia ran away. They took their SIM cards out of their phones and snapped them, got a secret phone, and stayed at a hotel room in Oklahoma. I mean, they tried. Yeah, they did. I have a feeling it's not going to quite take. No. Yasser said that he wanted them to come home for the holidays at the very least after Patricia finally caved and contacted him. And after learning their new numbers, he became relentless. Patricia assured her daughters that they would be staying at their, her sister's house and not staying with their dad. But Joseph begged her not to go. And by that point, it was too late. Amina and Sarah had been tricked by their mom unknowingly that this is going to be how it ended for them. She was so scared, and Amina refused to go home, saying that she would rather die and stayed with a friend, but Sarah went home with their mom. Yasser begged Amina to, at the very least, visit him and said that everything was going to be okay. 
And after spending a holiday mostly away from her family, on January 1st, the beginning of the new year, 2008, Amina agreed to visit and left her friend's house for a meal with their dad. And he would drive them to lunch in their taxi, and then a horrifying 911 call would go to dispatch, where Sarah was called after being shot nine times, saying that their dad was shooting them and that she was dying. The second 911 call to come into the station would be a stranger reporting two bodies in the back of a cab. Sarah had died from nine gunshot wounds, like I said, and Amina had died with two. Yasser had gone on the run for, you want to guess how many years? Oh, my God. I'm not going to like it, am I? No, 10 years. Jesus Christ. He was on America's Most Wanted, or Top 10 Most Wanted. And part of how he was able to get away for so long was because his son... Helped him. God damn it. I know. What is wrong with you? What is men? So Why? Well, it's his dad. It's I don't know. I don't know if at this point necessarily he knew that his sister. Well, no. To help him, he would have had to know that his sisters were dead. So I don't know. I don't know what would compel somebody to help in that situation. Well, exa- exactly. And here's the thing is I know a lot of people that probably couldn't bring themselves to turn in a loved one if it was just a random person. But he didn't kill one random person. He killed two people and they were not random by any stretch. These are two His other kids. people. Yeah, these are two other people that you're supposed to love, that he's supposed to love. And take care of. I just... It's unbelievable. So he shot them in 2008 and was apprehended 10 years later. And was tried in 2020 because COVID decided to take over. Holy shit. Their son, Islam, was charged with... 10 years in prison for aiding a felony or sorry, aiding a felon. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and two consecutive life sentences, first degree murder. And that is where he remains. Patricia has since legally divorced him and I mean, grieves I their daughters. Help. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I would be questioning Patricia if she didn't divorce him after that. That is where this story ends. Seriously, though, guys, thank you for listening to this story. These beautiful girls deserve to have their voices lifted. And and I'm really sad that this is how this turned out. And I know that their mother is completely distraught that this is how this turned out. I don't think that anyone thinks with abusers that it can escalate to death, but it can. Um, we have resources on our website for stuff like that at twistedandunkork.com. Go listen to some of our more lighthearted episodes. There are lots. And yeah. go and check out Caitlin's creepy true crime stories over on her podcast. Yeah. Thank you again, guys. Happy Father's Day. And uh, don't be like this guy. Don't be a dick.
Don't be a dick. Bye. Don't be a dick. (laughs) Damn. That was twisted as fuck. You weren't wrong. Yeah, I feel like, unfortunately, I sat in on more than one of these and learned all of the things about these horrific Father's Day tales. And uh, I don't think I had any idea what I was signing up for. Now you know how I feel. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Well, up next just happens to be us, Caitlin and Cassie. Yes, P&W, Haunts and Homicides. God help you if you hate the sound of my voice because I'm all (laughs) up in this bitch. Yeah, I don't talk a lot because I handle the spooky tales. So I don't touch the true crime. I just get to listen. Yay. Yay. So listen to me listen. Yeah. Hi, creepy people. This is PNW Haunts and Homicides, where I, Caitlin, and me, Cassie, cover true crime, paranormal, and all things spooky in the Pacific Northwest. Yep, that's where that PNW comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Or PNW if you're nasty. <laughs> <laughs> Usually, neither one of us can handle the other one's topic. It's true. Like today, that's why I won't be talking that much. You're going to hear a lot from Caitlin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just know the look on my face won't be pleasant. That's fine. All right. This is another holiday collaboration. So we're going to make this quick and dirty. You'll have to come to our regular feed to get any added details about the case that we share, as well as for the tarot reading. That's important. Yes. You don't want to miss that. James King was tried and acquitted in the infamous Father's Day Massacre of June 16th, 1991. Oh my God, a Father's Day Massacre? I don't like the sound of that. Nobody does. He died after succumbing to his dementia after 21 years of speculation and doubt being cast on his name, which is actually very sad if you think he really didn't do it and especially when you consider his background. James King had retired from law enforcement as a police sergeant in Denver at the time of the infamous crime. He was accused of killing four unarmed bank security guards in the commission of a bank robbery that was pretty much unlike anything that I've ever heard of. The four slain officers were Philip Lee Mankoff, Scott Raymond McCarthy, William Rogers McCollum Jr., and Todd Allen Wilson. 21 years later, the prosecutor still believed in the absolute guilt of the man. Despite presenting what some considered a fairly flimsy case in court all those years ago. After his acquittal, James King lived a quiet life in the same home he'd lived in previously, only now he became something of a hermit. His days were spent on quiet hobbyist pursuits, like building his model train sets. Aww. I know. So wholesome. Hardly how anyone thought they would expect a man suddenly $197,080 richer to spend his days. But the FBI kept a watchful eye on him for years. So let's talk a little bit about the trial and some of the evidence. The evidence was conflicting, and depending on the individual examining it, either undoubtable proof of his guilt or stalwart support of his innocence. I wonder where I'm going to land. 
I know. I'm really curious about this one. I think people are going to be really interested in kind of the follow-up discussion. Take, for instance, the fact that five out of the six surviving bank employees that had interacted with the killer in the money counting room identified James King as the killer. Though the cross-examination seemed to make clear that there were some fairly dramatic or questionable tactics used in the questioning conducted by law enforcement. As you can imagine, any defense team worth their salt would make sure the jury was aware of anything suspect in terms of evidentiary procedures and questioning. King's defense team had an absolute field day. That's one aspect of the case that I'm looking forward to sharing more about in the extended story for our regular feed. King shaved his mustache shortly after the crime occurred, which in this case, it looked bad. But if he had nothing to do with it, he's just a guy who's sick of looking like Ron Swanson. (laughs) Big whoop, right? Well, he also admitted that he was no longer in possession of his retired 38 caliber service revolver. Where to go? His story was that there had been damage to a key component of the weapon, at which point he destroyed it, and thus it was no longer in his possession. Hmm. Too many details, dude. One thing that was truly impressive was the fact that there was absolutely no trace left behind at the crime scene. We'll definitely try to explore the timeline on this a bit more because the timing, that's what really illustrates the expert level precision of whoever was behind the heist more than just about any other aspect of the case but simply summarized the killer retrieved all of the shells and wiped away fingerprints it doesn't seem like a big deal on the surface maybe but we'll dig into that so you can all drop your literal jaws prosecutors made a big show of the fact that king had often videotaped crime scenes which seems like the most unremarkable thing in his position. He's ex-law enforcement. But for personal use? Involved in a side hustle type thing. Gosh, there's so many subplots. (laughs) Yeah, here's another. His alibi also had holes, though. He'd stated he was playing chess with a club in downtown Denver, And it sounds like police were able to track this group down, but they refuted his account of where the games had taken place. The shaky alibi is definitely a problem that some people have just never been able to look past. Makes sense. Like, why are you going to lie about where you were? The ammo, in particular, was probably some of the more compelling evidence in the minds of the jurors as well as in public opinion. Supposedly, according to the prosecution's theory, James had pilfered the ammo from ammo buckets, which, if you're like me, required a little bit more elaboration. Over the years, police departments buy ammunition from a number of brands. It all gets mixed together. The bullets taken from the bodies of the victims were from four to five different brands. Oh. In most instances, Law enforcement would really be the only ones loading a gun with a mixture of different brands of ammo like this. Wouldn't be hard to make your own ammo bucket, though. Literally just buy three to five boxes of ammo 
and put them in a bucket and load the gun with bullets you pulled like you were selecting raffle winners. So it would be weird, right? But there have to be plenty of people in and outside of law enforcement that are aware of that practice. So if you wanted to make it look like a cop did it, it's possible that that could have been something they knew and they just used that to throw them off the scent in a different direction. Oh, snap. Snap. James Prado would become the star witness when he testified that because of changes to the bank security protocols that came after King was no longer employed, he would not have been familiar with how all of the security measures worked and how to thwart those newly enacted security measures like the man trap. Man trap? Intrigued? Yales. Yeah, I was too. So if you want to know who the hell James Prado was in relation to the bank in this case, and what the heck this newfangled man trap was, you'll just have to come and check out the full episode because there's far too much we couldn't cover here. But we think we'll have you questioning. Who really pulled off the Father's Day bank massacre? I am dying to know. Well, I've already heard that story and... I still didn't like it the second time around. So <laughs> it's okay. I'm not deeply offended that you are not a fan of, you know, just my life's work. I hate everything that you write. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, great job. I hate it. <laughs> That's okay. Just another Tuesday. Anywho, maybe you'll like this next one better. I definitely need a distraction. Yeah. If you need a distraction, she's got you. Is it a distraction from true crime, though? Mm, I'll let you guys be the judge. <laughs> All right. Well, let's check out Weird Distractions with host Alex. host of Weird Distractions podcast. If you haven't heard of Weird Distractions, it's a weekly show where I rotate in discussing true crime cases, paranormal hotspots, folklore tales, and more to provide what some may consider a weird distraction from everyday life. So whether you're going through a breakup, maybe a rough day at work, or just dealing with the qualms of life, there's something new each week to distract yourself with. For this 2023 Father's Day special, I'm going to cover a very weird and tragic case out of the state of Milwaukee in the United States. Now, I say this case is weird because when I read this headline, I first thought, wait, what? This has got to be a sick joke. Alas, the headline is legit, and this is where the tragedy kicks in. First responders were called to a family home located near 26 and Ruby in Milwaukee on June 22nd of 2019 due to concerns regarding five-year-old Sir Amir, who was one of five children to Travis Stackhouse and his unidentified girlfriend. Arriving just before 3 a.m., police officers responded to the 911 call alongside Milwaukee Fire Department and the paramedics, who would begin performing CPR on the young boy. Based on the initial disclosure by Travis, his son had fallen down the family's stairs the day prior during a family hangout at the home. 
It wasn't described as such, but I'm assuming the hangout was due to it being Father's Day. After the fall, Sir Amir later expressed experiencing pains in his stomach and reportedly vomited. Travis's girlfriend noticed that something was seriously wrong with Sir Amir and informed Travis of her concerns when he returned home from the bar at around 2 a.m. Despite the persistence of the first responders, Sir Amir would be pronounced dead on the scene. Although there was the initial report from Travis that his son had fallen down the stairs in what only could be described as a weird, fatal accident, Paramedics observed that the boy had severe bruising to his eyes, a cut on his lower lip, and a lacerated sternum, which did not seem consistent with the fall reported by Travis. During further investigating by officials, Sir Amir's six-year-old brother allegedly noted that Sir did not fall down the stairs, but rather he was hit with a close fist in the stomach area by his father, Travis. Now, why would Travis hit his own son? Well, let's break down what happened on June 21st with a direct quote from a CBS 58 article. Quote, when Stackhouse's girlfriend came home June 21st, they went outside to hang out with family and friends. When Stackhouse came back inside, he said he became angry when he found the three oldest children, including five-year-old Sir, eating his Father's Day cheesecake. Stackhouse denied physically assaulting the children. Based on reports, Travis came into the house, he saw the children eating the cheesecake, and he physically assaulted Sir. After this took place, Travis eventually left the home and went out drinking with his friends at a local bar that night. On top of the report from Sir's brother, there was also evidence from the Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's Office. The medical examiner determined that Sir Amir had suffered a ruptured stomach, bruised kidneys, and a torn adrenal gland, and further concluded that the boy's death was blunt force trauma to the abdomen, classifying the manner of death as homicide, according to the Washington Post article by Paulina Veligas. Travis, who was only in his late 20s at the time, was arrested for first-degree reckless homicide of his own son. Travis would eventually admit that he hit the boy boy's face with the back of his hand, which Travis indicated is heavier than normal because of metal inside from a previous surgery. It should also be mentioned that Travis has a criminal record from previous charges. However, from my understanding, nothing regarding assaulting his own children. From what I gathered online, Travis has a sex offense charge in the state of Illinois from 2012 and is a registered sex offender. Travis would reportedly plead guilty after accepting a deal with a reduced charge of second-degree reckless homicide along with child abuse and child neglect. Travis will be sentenced to consecutive terms of 15 years in prison for second-degree reckless homicide, three years for child neglect, and two years for child abuse. According to the Milwaukee Journal Centennial, Travis would remain on extended supervision for eight years after serving his prison sentences. Travis is currently being held at the Stanley Correctional Institution in Glendale, Wisconsin. Based on his offender detail page, he has a mandatory release date of June 10, 2039, and a maximum discharge date of June 10, 2047. Neither date feels long enough to suffice his actions towards his own son, Sir Amir. His own son's life was taken way too quickly at his own hand over something so mundane and so ridiculously silly. It was a cheesecake. It could be easily replaced. A life cannot. Thank you for tuning into this small feature. To hear other true crime cases or cases involving the paranormal, conspiracy theories, folklore, and more, feel free to tune in to Weird Distractions podcast every Sunday at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can stream Weird Distractions on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Check out the show's social media accounts as well over on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. I hope you have a great and safe Father's Day, and if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye.
Wow, that was distracting, but not quite in the way I wanted it to be. Like in a more disturbing way than you were hoping? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. Next, we have Ye Old Crime. For those of you that are into things that are old-timey and crimey, hosted by Lindsay and Madison, or Maddie, let us yeet into this old-timey story. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stangle. Hello. Hi. What makes this so special? This is a special mini episode for a Father's Day compilation. Ooh. So our mini episode today... In keeping with the Father's Day theme, mm-hmm. and in knowing what kind of podcast we are, we are going to be discussing the murder of Thomas Wilson. Oh, boy. Information was pulled from the following sources. The 2013 Journal of Victorian Culture article by Jade Shepard, the Proceedings of the Old Bailey website, the Berkshire Record Office website, an 1873 Birmingham Daily Post article, Genie.com, and Wikipedia. All right. In most cases, when you discuss Father's Day, you're celebrating the fathers in your life. Right. Today, we're going to vilify a man named George Wilson, who committed a horrible act of familiacide in March of 1873. Not great. Nope. But that's what we do. That's what we do here. (laughs) That's what we do here. We talk about the things that aren't great. Hey, this sucks. Let's talk about it. (laughs) Let's go there. (laughs) The Monday, November 10th, 1873 edition of the Birmingham Daily Post published the following on the case. Quote, dreadful murder in London. At the Clerkenwell Police Court on Saturday, before Mr. Hannay, George Wilson, aged 54, who was described on the charge sheet as of no occupation, residing at 35 Catherine Street, Islington, was charged with feloniously murdering his son, Thomas, aged 10 years, by striking him on the head with a chopper in the above address. A chopper? Like an axe? An axe. Oh my god! Mm -hmm. Mr. James William Oxley, a clerk in the post office at Veer Street, Oxford Street, said, quote, I reside in the next house to the prisoner. This morning, about five minutes to nine, I was in my bedroom, about to wash myself, when my son, who was in the back garden, called me. I hastened out and saw him looking over the rails that divide the two gardens. Mm -hmm. I looked and saw the prisoner's wife at the back window of the prisoner's house. She was screaming out, come to my husband, Mr. Oxley. He has murdered my son, Tom. Oh, my God. I jumped over the rails, took up a broom, went upstairs, and in the passage, I observed prisoner clutching his little boy, who was on the ground. He had his arms entirely round the body of his son, and he was right over him being on his knees. I seized hold of the right wrist of the prisoner, and at that moment he dropped an axe from his right hand. The axe dropped on the right-hand side of the body, the prisoner holding the body up with his left hand. I pulled the prisoner away with great force, for the prisoner still clutched the body and groaned and cried fearfully. 
The eldest son, who had just previously been having his bath, came up naked. With his assistance, I pulled the prisoner away from the murdered child into the parlor and put him on a couch. I then went back to the child and put the axe under the mat to hide it. I opened the street door, called for assistance, and sent for a medical man and the constable. With assistance, we put the child into a blanket and put it into a cab when we were met by Dr. Slater, who had the child removed into a chemist's office and examined it. I observed that the child was completely deluged in blood and had severe cuts on the head. Prisoner, when he was placed in the parlor, was restrained from leaving. I worked with the prisoner 18 years since, and he was a most affectionate father. In fact, he doted on his children and would not allow a hair of their heads to be injured. The prisoner has been out of his mind for months. The prisoner, in answer to Mr. Henay, said he had no questions to ask. Dr. Slater of 1 Thornhill Crescent, Barnsbury, said, quote, This morning I was called to the prisoner's house, and when I got there the injured boy was being removed. I examined him and found him suffering and bleeding profusely from an incised wound just above the left temple, about three inches long. There was also a fracture of the skull. There was a little posterior to the first wound, a small lacerated one. There was a fracture of the skull, about five or six inches long. The boy lingered until about half past 11 this morning when he died. End quote. He didn't even die suddenly? Mm-mm. William Wilson, brother of the deceased, corroborated in the main Mr. Oxley's evidence and said his father had been in a desponding state of mind for some time and had attempted to commit suicide. The family had been in treaty for his removal to an asylum. Mr. Henay, quote, has he always been a kind father, end quote? Witness, oh yes, he has been one of the best of fathers until he went out of his mind. So that was his son that said that. Mr. Hanay remanded the prisoner until Friday, end quote. So that was the whole article that was published about this case. Wow, that's extensive. And that would have been really extensive at the time, too. Mm -hmm. The following is from Proceedings of the Central Criminal Court, November 24th, 1873, regarding George's sentencing. Quote, Old Court, Wednesday, November 26th, 1873, before Mr. Justice Quain, George Wilson, age 54, was indicted for the willful murder of Thomas Wilson upon the evidence of Mr. John Rowland Gibson, surgeon of Newgate. The jury found the prisoner to be of unsound mind and incapable of pleading to the indictment, ordered to be detained until Her Majesty's pleasure be known. End quote. Her Majesty's pleasure was that he be imprisoned for insanity, and so it was that he was committed to Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. So at this point, the queen would decide the fate of these people? Technically, it would be somebody like that. Okay. I was like, how does queen. she have the time? She doesn't. It's typically somebody that like reports to the queen. Got it. Because I was like, her majesty. <laughs> the yeah. the, how did they get her into this? <laughs> Dang. Who has her number in the Rolodex? This is yeah. crazy. For those not in the know, Broadmoor is one of the most infamous psychiatric hospitals in England, being the oldest of its three high-security facilities. Is it still open? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah. That place is so haunted and mm -hmm. probably super awful. I can't imagine. Opened in 1863. Oh, God. 
Ironically enough, its first patient was a woman who was admitted for committing infanticide on May 27, 1863. At the time of George's arrival, the original building consisted of five blocks, four of which for men and one for women. Medical reports regarding George Wilson during his time at Broadmoor note that he said he was hearing voices, which caused him, quote, mm. nothing but misery and torment, end quote. I wonder if he was late stage schizophrenia, maybe? Maybe. Mm, that's too bad. All told, he would serve three stints in Broadmoor. He was first admitted in 1874, before he was discharged in 1881. I searched through 5,000 George Wilsons on G.com. Oh my goodness. Doing a search by the year of his birth, based on his age at the time of the incident. And I was able to find out, at the time he was discharged from Broadmoor in 1881, he was 62, and that same year a census was taken. Mm -hmm. He was listed as living with his wife, Elizabeth Noble Wilson, who was 55, his son William, so the one that... Mm -hmm. That survived. That survived and was talking about him in court who at that time was 34, his son George Jr., who was 23, and son Benjamin, age 17. On Genie, it listed him as having a daughter named Fanny that was born in 1856, which would have made her 25 in 1881, but no death date was listed and there was nothing about Thomas, the son that he yeah. murdered. It is possible that she either passed away or that she had gotten married and had moved out of the home, which... Yeah, makes sense. George was readmitted to Broadmoor in 1889 before he was released in 1891. He wasn't out long, though, as records show he was readmitted that same year. Considering his records at the hospital end in 1898, mm -hmm. I think it's safe to assume that he was either released a final time that year or that he passed away. Yeah. And I could not find a death date for him in all of my research. No dying. I did reach out to the Berkshire Record Office because if you live in the UK, you can go to their records office and you mm -hmm. can like get access to these documents. Right. If you live across the ocean, you can't because right. they have to scan them. And I had mm -hmm. asked them about it and it, I would have had to pay like 209 pounds to see the entire file. Whoa. Which equals like $212. Yeah. So I don't know when he That's passed crazy. away, if he died while he was there. It's entirely possible he would have been 79 in yeah. 1898. And, that, and 1898, that's old. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was the Father's Day-esque case that I thought I would cover today. So heartwarming. <laughs> so not, heartwarming. So not sad, not devastatingly sad. Nope. Well, if you like that. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Yield Crime Podcast, and on Twitter at Yield Crime Pod. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. Wow, we have really gotten an interesting blend of stories today. Yeah, we have. We've kind of covered it all. And from all different timelines, too. All right, well... Maybe we can try something a little calmer. Almost sleepy. I don't trust you. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Next up, we have Dustin at Sandman Stories. Tired but can't fall asleep? 
Dustin does his best work to find interesting stories from the public domain and read them until you fall asleep. The stories are mostly folk tales from around the world. Best listened to during work, during commutes, when you are trying to fall asleep, or any time that you need a calm friend to read to you. Hello listeners, this is Dustin from Sandman Stories Presents, reading a special Father's Day story. This one I'm calling Father's Day, from Anansi. Long, long ago, near the city of Accra, lived the mighty hunter Anansi, with his wise and wonderful wife, Effia, who was born on a Friday. Now between them, they had six children. The eldest was Seal, who could look far and wide and find anything, anywhere. The second child was Roadmaker. She could pave a road over the oceans and through the deepest jungles. The third child was River Drinker. With one little sip, he could drain Lake Volta down to the mud. The fourth child was named Rock Thrower. They could pitch a rock so hard and so accurate that they could knock a fly off a leaf on the top of a tree. The fifth child was named Life Giver. She could take the bones of the dead and put them back together and bring life back into the body. The sixth child was a sweet, soft boy. His name was Cushion. He was so soft and sweet, he could catch any falling thing and let it down easy. Now Effia was pregnant again, and she asked Anansi to go get the yams that grew on the other side of Lake Volta. So Anansi left their home in Kumasi and walked for days and days and days. Anansi was a skilled hunter and gatherer, but the road was very difficult when there was a road, and he often had to stop and rest. When he got to the shores of Lake Volta, he swam all the way across and pulled himself up on the other shore. Finally, Anansi found the yam field near Kampando. He looked until he found the juiciest, fattest, tastiest yam and put it in a sack on his back and started towards home. He had just crossed the midway point of Lake Volta when a big, hungry catfish the size of a Katanka full-sized SUV jumped up and swallowed him whole. He hoped that Seal would see him and come rescue him, but Seal was distracted playing Zanzama with his friends, and he had a terrible headache. Now while Anansi was gone, Effia had their seventh child. This one was named Remember Me. Remember Me was a lovely little child, and it grew into a sweet toddler. Effia went on with her work, and the children continued to play. All the while, the memory of Anansi faded. One day, Remember Me asked Effia, Na, where's Agya? Memories of her sweet Anansi came flooding back. It had been many years since he left, and there had been no memory of him for a long time. Seal climbed to the top of a tall banana tree and looked and looked and saw his father's bones deep inside a catfish. They all wanted to go and bring back their father, but it was a very long and difficult path. Luckily, Roadmaker could make a smooth walking path for them, even through the roughest rocks and the wildest forests. Soon they were on the banks of Lake Volta. River Drinker smiled and said, Now it is my turn. He took a couple of deep breaths and put his lips to the water. Soon the water was gone and the fish were seen flopping in the mud. 
The family was excited to see the fish, but didn't know how to get Anansi out of the fish in the mud. Suddenly, an eagle swooped down and picked up the catfish and began to fly away with it. Rockthrower picked up a small stone nearby and eyeballed the eagle. They pulled their arm back and chucked the rock hard. The eagle heard the rock whistle by its head and dropped the fish out of pure fright. Cushion took a deep breath and spread his body out to make a big, soft spot for that fish to land so that Anansi's bones didn't get all cracked and shattered. The fish landed on Cushion and threw up Anansi's bones to say thank you. River Drinker spit out the water and a huge rush came sweeping in and put the fish back in the restored lake. Lifegiver put all the bones back together and Anansi slowly came back to life. Now Anansi wanted to thank his children for bringing him back, but he could not decide which of his loving children had done the most. I built the road. Without that, you would still be stuck in the mud, said Road Builder. I threw the rock that made the eagle drop you, said Rock Thrower. Without me, you would still be inside the fish at the bottom of the lake, said Raver Drinker, whose mouth was still a little bit fishy. I was the one who broke your fall, said Cushion softly. If I did not see where you were in the first place, none of the other kids would have found you, Father. I deserve the prize, said Seal. Anansi thought and thought, but he couldn't pick a favorite. They had all done something to bring him back. Then Effia whispered in his ear, and Anansi realized that her words were true. He gathered his children around and said, You have all helped me, and without you, I would be nothing but bones in the belly of a fish. But the child that did the most, and the one who will get the biggest piece of yam, is remember me. Without them... I would have been forgotten and never been able to return. The End This story was adapted from multiple sources, including Gerald McDermott's award-winning retelling of the story and several other online retellings. A big thank you goes out to Lindsay and Madison of the Yield Crime Podcast. You are two cool Minnesotans, don't you know? Thank you, and good night. Okay, that was actually quite refreshing. Not at all scary like I thought it was going to be. Well, Dustin does have a very calming voice, but thankfully I made it through without actually falling asleep. It'd be real weird on mic. Right. But, you know, we are ready to go take a nap. So definitely 10 out of 10, a hundred thousand million percent recommend naps. You've earned it. It's Father's Day. Take a nap. Have Have a a creepy-ass Father's Day. Day.